You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today, a year after Narendra Modi swept to power in India in a landslide election victory, we'll ask if he's fulfilled the great expectations of his admirers or realized the worst fears of his detractors. But we begin with Macedonia, where tens of thousands of people have taken part this week in rival demonstrations, some protesting against Prime Minister Nikola Grevsky and others rallying in support of him. The opposition accuses the Prime Minister of corruption, of tapping the phones of thousands of people and of fomenting ethnic tensions to hang on to power. The Prime Minister says his critics are destabilising Macedonia, a former Yugoslav Republic that has been in the grip of a political crisis since disputed elections a year ago. And the country is still in shock after a clash between police and ethnic Albanian men left 18 people dead earlier this month. To discuss the situation, I'm joined now from Brussels by Erwin Fueri, an Associate Senior Research Fellow at the Centre for European Policy Studies and a former EU Special Representative to Macedonia. Erwin Fueri, how serious is the threat to the Prime Minister? Uh, well, it's, it's very serious indeed, uh, because uh, this uh, situation has been going on for quite some time. And unfortunately, uh, this government uh, and Prime Minister over the years uh, have shown that uh, they do not understand the real meaning of political dialogue and have done very little to try to promote a, a national consensus uh, towards the uh, key objectives uh, of uh, Macedonia in its EU-NATO integration. Uh, and uh, this is also a government and a prime minister that doesn't entertain any criticism. Uh, it always regards such criticism expressed by people who they define as uh, traitors or enemies of the state. And also this is reflected in the fact that the media freedom record of Macedonia is the worst uh, in the entire region. In fact, now in the latest uh, indication of the Reporters Without Borders Index, Macedonia ranks along with Angola. So this, these are just a few examples to emphasize to you the, the depth of frustration uh, with this government that it has refused to listen. And the result of that was this extraordinary outpouring of public rejection uh, on Sunday where thousands and thousands of people from all over the country, and not just from one ethnic community, but from all ethnic communities, uh, and uh, thus showing a, a united approach in a manner which the Prime Minister has never been able to achieve in the nine years he has been in, in government. So you, you mentioned this ethnic dimension, and we should say the, uh, the population of Macedonia, about 25% or 30% of the people in Macedonia are of Albanian origin. Yes, according to the 2002 census, which is the last census, there are officially 25% of the, uh, uh, of the population of 2 million are ethnic uh, Albanian, uh, and then you have smaller percentages of Turkish, Bosniak, Serbian, and Roma communities as well. And they were all there on Sunday uh, demonstrating their rejection of, of this uh, government, current government's uh, uh, policies. Uh, but yes, the situation is very serious because the Prime Minister has refused to, to resign. Uh, three of his ministers uh, resigned last week, but uh, this was subject to strong international pressure. 
uh, and uh, but he himself uh, has said that uh, he sees no reason why he should resign, and he has shown very little inclination towards any compromise at the moment, unfortunately. Now, one of the, the accusations against him is that he uh, was in some way involved in authorising the phone tapping of thousands of people, including uh, some of his political opponents. What do we know about this phone tapping? This is an extraordinary situation. Of course, even when I was working there, we suspected that our telephones were tapped. I guess it happens in many countries, but not on this scale. And uh, without any um, uh, parliamentary oversight or anything like that. And um, the Prime Minister has uh, stated and claimed that uh, this wiretapping was uh, the was done by uh, unnamed foreign intelligence services he has refused to name who these services are and it's not the first time that he has uh, suggested foreign intelligence services and in involvement and which really uh, doesn't stand uh, to scrutiny because what uh, really has macedonia to offer that is of any strategic value to foreign intelligence services so this is clearly uh, a, an operation which was uh, conducted within uh, the government uh, and uh, a number uh, of people uh, decided that this was really too much and released the tapes to the leader of the opposition who has been making them public over the past few months and have revealed some appalling uh, examples of uh, alleged corruption, of interference in the electoral process of uh, manufacturing uh, fictitious ballot papers, stuffing the ballot boxes in elections, uh, and also trying to cover up uh, the murder in 2011 of a young student uh, who was part of the uh, celebrations after the elections in 2011. And the voices on these tapes are clearly identifiable. You can recognize the voice of the Prime Minister, the voice of the Minister of Interior, and others, uh, and I think what has struck everybody is the the level of the the language. I mean, this is really a gutter politics at its worst, unfortunately. Now there is this uh, mysterious incident, this gun battle uh, earlier this month, that um, between police and some armed uh, Albanian men, which left eighteen people dead. Now the the prime minister suggests that this was a terrorist group. Do we know much about who these people were? What was actually going on there? There are a lot of unanswered questions, unfortunately, and the information uh, released from the government has been extremely sparse. And indeed, it took one and a half days uh, before the prime minister uh, actually uh, spoke out about it, even though by then eight police officers had been killed. And eight police officers for such a small country is a huge uh, number. Uh, there are a lot of uh, suspicions, uh, for example, uh, why did the ruling party move its um, uh, annual, its congress from that city, which was supposed to take during that weekend and brought it forward uh, to uh, earlier in, uh, in another week. Many of these questions we don't know. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, um, there are many who speculate that this is an attempt by the government to try to use uh, inter-ethnic tensions to, uh, you know, strengthen his position in power uh, and so forth. But 
as I say, it's too early to say, uh, but certainly it did raise the level of tension uh, enormously. The accusations against the Macedonian government are particularly lurid, but it's not really unusual in the region, is it, to have uh, these uh, alleged or indeed real links between uh, governments and the criminal uh, fraternity and, uh, and criminality. And isn't that a problem that's endemic throughout the Balkans? Yes, it is true uh, that uh, you do have uh, uh, politicians, uh, the uh, elite, if you like, uh, the, the so-called state gate, gatekeepers, as they're called, uh, in Bosnia, in Macedonia, who are quite happy uh, with the current situation because uh, they have a vested interest in it. There are, they are involved with in criminal activities, cross-border crime, uh, trafficking, things like this. And uh, for them, uh, the longer the accession process is delayed uh, into the European Union, the better, because they can continue unhindered. But what we have heard from these wiretapping conversations uh, is uh, unprecedented, uh, I would suggest, in the entire region. We have never heard of such an extent of, um, of uh, uh, violations of the electoral process, of uh, alleged criminal activities, etc., as we have in these uh, released uh, phone tapping conversations. But isn't this, uh, Erwin Fuere, a structural problem with the whole accession process, that part of the idea of the way the process was designed was that it ought to have uh, a benign and improving impact in terms of the governance of these states as they got themselves ready to join the European Union. Instead, as you say, uh, many powerful actors within these states have an interest in prolonging the whole process. Yes. Well, I would say two things to that. First of all, it is true that the uh, leverage of the European Union has greatly diminished uh, with uh, internal economic problems uh, within the European Union, the Greek uh, financial crisis and and others, and also those uh, right-wing parties who equate enlargement with increased immigration. Uh, so um, this, uh, of course, plays into the hands of the populist nationalists uh, in the Balkans who would be quite happy to see uh, accession delayed. And the other uh, uh, issue, I would say, is that the European Union, it just shows that the European Union should have a much more hands-on role in the Balkans. Uh, and uh, why uh, did they play such a, a critical and very successful role between in normalizing the relations between Serbia and Kosovo, but they are doing very little as regards Bosnia and Herzegovina and now as regards Macedonia. The EU leadership has been singularly absent, and this is uh, extremely uh, unfortunate. Uh, the uh, foreign ministers, of course, have been issuing statements, but this is not enough. Uh, and I do believe that the EU member states need to be m- much more determined and uh, to insist with the EU institutions that they play much, a much more uh, assertive uh, role, uh, particularly when countries that are aspiring to join the European Union are disrespecting all the reforms and recommendations of the European Union in the enlargement process. We had, as you mentioned, the uh, big demonstration on Sunday, and then there was a counter-demonstration, a demonstration with perhaps tens of thousands of people in Skopje in support of the Prime Minister on Monday. 
Yes. Uh, is there any sign that uh, uh, that anything uh, is going to dislodge him from uh, from power? Not at the moment, unfortunately. The uh, those who demonstrated on Sunday. So you had, as I say, uh, not just the opposition parties, but you also had civic uh, groups, civil organisations. You had uh, Roma community. You had the students uh, who have been uh, campaigning uh, for many, many months for some respect from the government uh, and against reforms that were uh, imposed without any prior consultation, which would be normal in, in any democratic society as, as we know it. So they are still, some of the, the demonstrators are still there. They are camped outside the government building uh, and they have pledged to remain there until the entire government resigns. Now, Today, uh, the Prime Minister and the leader of the opposition, who had his passport removed several months ago by the Prime Minister because of alleged espionage, um, they're both now in Strasbourg in a uh, facilitation, facilitated dialogue by the European Parliament. But I don't believe this, this will, unfortunately, solve the, the crisis. There needs to be a much more determined effort so we are in, I'm afraid, for some more very tense, difficult days and weeks ahead. Finally, as you mentioned, Macedonia is a small country without any huge strategic importance for the great powers. Why should the rest of Europe be concerned about what's happening there? Well, it's interesting that, um, first of all, of course, it's on our doorstep. I mean, uh, Macedonia uh, is a beautiful country. It has wonderful uh, tourist potential, uh, young people who are determined to to make uh, a living, a proper living, uh, and they're very keen to join the European Union. But at the same time, uh, you have this government that uh, governs by its own rules uh, and doesn't want to entertain any compromise. And interestingly enough, over the past days, we saw uh, statements by the Russian uh, foreign ministry, uh, very unusual because for the previous years they would never mention Macedonia, but suddenly they have become interested and they have accused the West of fomenting um, an orange revolution, similar a color revolution, I should say, similar to they're trying to suggest that it's something similar to Ukraine. Of course, there are huge differences between the two. But it just does show that the EU is no longer the only player in the Balkans, uh, and this should make the EU more attentive to what is happening that uh, it would be very unfortunate if uh, a, a big power play were to uh, occur using uh, the Balkan countries uh, for uh, other reasons. And that's why it's another additional uh, dimension to the uh, crisis. Owen Fuere, thank you. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. Next week sees the first anniversary of Narendra Modi's election as India's Prime Minister after a landslide victory for his Hindu nationalist BJP. Mr Modi promised to kickstart the economy, boost employment, improve education and healthcare and modernise India's police and military. India's minority Muslim and Christian communities were wary of the new Prime Minister's history of assertive Hindu nationalism, but most Indians have been impressed by his fiery speeches and his successful trips abroad during the first months in office. 
So is the Modi magic still working? Or is the 65-year-old Prime Minister's appeal starting to wear off? To find out, I'm joined now from Delhi by our correspondent, Rahul Bedi. Rahul, how is Mr. Modi doing one year on? Well, Mr. Modi's scorecard is a little blemished. Uh, he hasn't really managed to, uh, in any way, kickstart the economy. Employment is still very low. There's very little money in the market. Uh, the uh, the share market in India is, uh, is is like a yo-yo, and the do- and the value of the rupee against the dollar has plummeted about 20% in the last uh, couple of weeks. So all in all, uh, the situation which everybody was hoping Mr. Modi would rescue in terms of the economy uh, hasn't really happened. Uh, there are, I mean, the alibi on the part of the government is that it's systemic problems and these things cannot be sorted out. Uh, but Mr. Modi has not really uh, taken advantage of the decline in oil prices. And now that the oil prices are going up, uh, there is a, a looming uh, failed monsoon coming up, which is always a, a very big emotive issue and an economic issue in India. Mr. Modi faces uh, a, a huge uh, number of problems. And, uh, Mr. Modi, uh, when he was a state governor, he had uh, something of a reputation as a, a, a rather dynamic, pro-business uh, politician and a man who was able to get things done. What exactly has gone wrong for him so far as Prime Minister of India? Well, when Mr. Modi was uh, heading his home state of Gujarat in Western India, he was uh, heading about 50 million people. Uh, right now, he's ruling over uh, 1.25 billion people. Uh, the problem is that Mr. Modi uh, has emerged as a loner. He's not a team player. Uh, he's not a cabinet man. He's running, in a sense, uh, in the Westminster model, uh, presidential form of government. And he's ruling through bureaucrats through civil servants, uh, and he centralized everything. In fact, a lot of important appointments haven't been made to either ambassadorial posts or uh, executive positions of authority or even judges in the Supreme Court, purely because Mr. Modi either doesn't have the time or not neither the inclination. Uh, so everything really seems to be uh, predicated to Mr. Modi's personalized way of doing things, which worked in his home state of Gujarat but is not really uh, working at the national level. And is there any sign that that now that he has been in power for 12 months that he's uh, getting the hang of how the system works and so that we might see some big initiatives coming to fruition in the next few months? Well, that's uh, something which uh, we'll know as as time goes on. Uh, Mr. Modi has, um, uh, he claims he has... uh, uh, initiated a lot of uh, uh, proposals, particularly he has uh, empowered the, the provinces a lot more. And under the previous government, a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, economic initiatives were centralized. Mr. Modi says that he has, he's planning to uh, decentralize them and provincialize them. But again, that has not really happened. Uh, and as I said, Mr. Modi is not really a team player, and he's facing also a lot of resentment within his own party because he has a majority of uh, 282 MPs in Parliament, which is the first time that anybody managed to get uh, a single party managed to get a majority in 30 years. Uh, but Mr. Modi is facing a lot of resentment within his own party because uh, of his treatment of his members of Parliament, of his ministers, 
and uh, it, it is very standoffish, it is very brusque, it is very arrogant. Uh, so there is a incipient uh, problem and dissatisfaction brewing even within his own party and his own coalition. One area where he seems to have been pretty active is in terms of foreign policy. Certainly he made a lot of big and very high-profile trips abroad during his first months in office. Yes, uh, Mr. Modi has, uh, in fact, very surprisingly emerged as somebody with a very robust foreign policy. He has traveled uh, very extensively over the last uh, 12 months. He's been to the U.S., he's been to Europe, he's been to Japan, he's been to Australia, and he's currently he's uh, on a three-nation tour, uh, which includes China, Mongolia, and South Korea. He's coming back tonight from uh, South Korea. Uh, and he's made a lot of promises. He's, he's initiated a lot of MOUs worth billions and billions of dollars. But as a lot of people uh, and analysts and newspapers and the media are saying that uh, a lot of these MOUs are really not worth the paper they're written on because um, nothing has really changed. And in fact, there was a report in the China Daily today which said that um, nothing in terms of climate uh, of investment has changed in India and it really remains fairly bureaucratic and, uh, and uh, regressive. Has anything changed strategically where India's foreign policy is concerned or can we see a kind of a direction of travel under Mr Modi as to where Indian foreign policy is going? Well, India has uh, come a lot closer to the, to the US as it were. Uh, the U.S. and India are, are embarked on a fairly close uh, defense relationship. In fact, uh, the U.S. Defense Secretary Ashton Carter is headed here uh, in early June, uh, and a lot of initiatives are expected. India is buying a lot of Western equipment. India is entering into uh, technical collaboration on weapon systems. Uh, so there is a lot of movement on that side. There is also a lot of movement on forming some kind of a quadrilateral, which is uh, with the aim of containment of China. This includes India, the U.S., Japan, and Australia. Um, Mr. Modi has also managed to secure supplies of uranium for India's civil nuclear uh, plants. So there has been some movement on that side. But again, India is uh, a little hesitant, and I think Mr. Modi will have to uh, push uh, the establishment and push the boundaries of uh, caution uh, which India has exercised earlier if India really wants to uh, at least have a seat at the high table. There were high hopes uh, for Mr Modi from his supporters and indeed from most Indians perhaps but there were some in the Christian and the Muslim communities who were a bit worried about him. They felt that uh, his internationalism was uh, a bit too strident for their comfort, and they feared that uh, a, a, that a cold climate was coming for them. Have those fears been realised? Well, um, unfortunately, their fears have, uh, in a sense, been vindicated because uh, a lot of uh, Christian institutions like churches, uh, uh, schools ha- uh, run by Christian missionaries have been attacked. In fact, uh, in a very uh, dreadful incident, a 71-year-old Christian nun was raped in uh, eastern India. Uh, and uh, a lot of Muslims are feeling uh, very besieged because uh, the, uh, the parties associated with Mr. Modi's BJP uh, launched uh, reconversion programs for Muslims. Um, so a lot of these fears have in a sense, been realized, and they've really been exacerbated because Mr. Modi hasn't really come out and condemned these in a very outright and forthright fashion. And this is one of the big criticisms of Mr. Modi, that he is not really an inclusive leader. 
and uh, he is influenced more by nationalism and by Hindu nationalist organizations. Uh, and uh, these organizations have an agenda. And with Mr. Modi in power, they feel they can secure them because of the uh, political muscle that the BJP enjoys. So it's a, it's a slightly tenuous situation. Uh, and unless Mr. Modi goes that extra half mile, uh, I think uh, the tensions will continue. Uh, Mr. Modi has, of course, been pretty fortunate in his opponents in the shape of the Congress Party, which uh, certainly uh, the last time we, uh, we saw them in an electoral contest didn't seem to be doing very well. Any sign of a rebound for Congress at all? Well, I think if you speak to congressmen, they uh, they feel that they're going to win the next election, but I don't think that's really going to happen because they're pinning their hopes in a 44-year-old uh, uh, Rahul Gandhi, who is, uh, uh, in, a, in a sense, to the manner born. And uh, Mr. Gandhi is uh, the sort of scarlet pimpernel of uh, Indian politics. Uh, he appears, disappears, um, makes statements, and then, uh, and then uh, vanishes for weeks on end. Uh, he's not really a viable alternative, but then again, given the dynastic uh, uh, shift of the Congress party, um, there's very little alternative. So I think um, there is no plan B to Mr. Modi. And if Mr. Modi doesn't succeed in, uh, in vindicating his electoral promises, I think uh, India is in for uh, quite a tough time. Rahul Bedi in Delhi, thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can find more on all our stories at irishtimes.com and you can contact us at worldview at irishtimes.com. But from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer Gary White, and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye.